Hello, and welcome to Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Pessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today is just the two of us, and I thought it would be fun to offer up kind of a sampler platter of interesting science in the, in the sense of, if you imagine that most of our episodes are kind of a meal based around one topic or one interview subject... This is instead kind of a party table of snacks. Tessa, how about you start us off? So I have two different articles. Would you like to hear the more recent one first or the older one first? Dealer's choice. I think the older one will segue into the, some of the things that you've worked on, so I'll save that for later. First one, though, just came out this past year, and you may have heard some of the buzz about it, or our listeners may have. So they've managed to figure out what time of year the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs impacted which is pretty wild given that was 66 million years yeah. ago can you give us the like article name yeah sure uh it's simply called the mesozoic terminated in boreal spring mesozoic being the era of the dinosaurs boreal means northern spring and the way the discovery was made is we know this from a site in north dakota that was discovered about 10 years ago by a guy named robert de palma who later turned out to be kind of sketched for unrelated reasons but that's a topic for another time. And the site is called Panis. But it is a pretty extraordinary find in that it, it basically was formed as a direct consequence of the Chehalub asteroid impact that wiped out the dinosaurs. 66 million years ago, there was a shallow inland sea that kind of went up the middle of North America before the Rocky Mountains formed. The asteroid impacted in the Gulf of Mexico and caused massive earthquakes all throughout North and South America. These earthquakes caused what are called siege waves, which is kind of a cousin of a tsunami. It's a seismically induced like water wave and flooded this riverbank and all the sediment deposited out and 66 million liters has fossilized and entrapped, you know, all the organisms, mostly fish that, you know, got swept up in that siege wave on the day of the impact and preserved them in time. So we have like a snapshot of about like an hour or so after the asteroid hit, which in itself is extraordinarily high time resolution for, you know, an event that is 66 million years yeah. ago. This is, this may be outside of your mm -hmm. base of knowledge, but I remember growing up, I think the idea that an asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs was still presented as like, this is one of several different... Yes. Hypothesis. Do you know at what point we kind of got to a resolution of like, this is, we've all kind of agreed here. The idea was first postulated in the 80s by a father and son team of scientists, Alvarez. I don't remember their first names. And for a while, it was just a competing theory. Then they found the Chihalub asteroid impact crater in the Gulf of Mexico, and that provided more evidence. However, for a long time there was still some debate up until pretty recently actually partially because the other thing that was happening about 66 million years ago was a massive volcanic episode in india and we're talking like thousands of square kilometers of like lava fields erupting it's an event called a flood basalt volcanism that just kind of randomly happens about every hundred million years or so on the planet 
And it was wondered if that could have contributed to the dinosaurs' extinction, uh, particularly since we know that another mass extinction, in fact, most mass extinctions, coincide with those massive eruptions, like the great dying at the end of the Permian-Triassic that um, wiped out like 90% of life on the planet was largely caused, at least initially, by another one of these episodes of mass volcanism. And the other thing is that if you look at the strata, you know, the layers of Earth and a cut in a hillside or whatever, three meters below the boundary that marks where that asteroid impacted, there haven't been a lot of dinosaur fossils found. And this is actually referred to in paleontology as the three meter problem. And that made people wonder if, well, there was these volcanoes erupting, maybe dinosaurs are already on their way out, you know, likely due to the volcanic eruptions that I mentioned earlier. The finds at Tanis, though, do include dinosaur fossils, although they weren't the focus of the paper we'll be discussing. Um, and that's kind of suggested that the asteroid impact was the primary cause. Um, you know, it's possible that Dinosaurs were already stressed out, ecologically speaking, due to the volcanic eruption, but it really was the asteroid that, that put the nail in the coffin for them as a clade. So basically, it, to answer your question, it was only really in the last 10 years that it was definitively decided that the asteroid was by far the largest contributor to the extinction of the dinosaurs. So then in this paper, what new thing have they done? Well, since they've been able to determine that, again, that the site almost certainly comes from like within a few hours of the impact, and partially that's also because they literally found debris, molten rock that had been ejected into space by the impact on suborbital trajectories and then rained back down into Earth, uh, they found those pieces of debris in this like fossil layer or fossil collection. Most of the organisms fossilized that they found have been fish, unsurprisingly, because it was a riverbank that got hit by a sea tweed. And it turns out that most of the fish species are paddlefish, which are apparently a relative of modern-day sturgeon. And the, some of their teeth and like associated bones actually have growth rings because uh, they basically put on new bone plating every year. And by looking at these layers, how thin or thick they are, and also to a degree the isotopic composition, they've been able to determine that, you know, they hadn't really fully formed that year's growth plate on their teeth. And therefore, it must have happened in the springtime because that's when they would first be forming those growth layers. So basically, it's tree ringed, but with fish teeth. And by looking at the comparative width of the growth rings in the teeth, they've been able to determine that, yeah, it was in the spring and specifically the Northern Hemisphere spring because that's where the site was. Wow. Is there, do you know, is there any, basically we both know that, that science is a lot pettier and more contentious than a lot of people, I think, imagine, right? Like people. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's lots of drama. Essentially subtweeting each other in publications all the time. Do you know if there is any of that, like how well received has this paper been? Um, this one has been well received because it was by a different team led by Melanie During. She's considered legit. She doesn't have any of the sketchiness that Robert De Palma has. So, so, so far as I know, it's been pretty well accepted. Or at the very least, I haven't heard anyone like sounding off against it or like subtweeting about it. Um, so yeah, as far as I know, it's been accepted. Yeah. 
I don't think that I could be a paleontologist because the responsibility of dealing with fossils, I think, would yeah. absolutely freak my being. Often very fragile fossils. Uh, yes, just yes. I get a, that. An absolutely priceless artifact, not only because not because of any like monetary value, but because it is a, a singular object offering insight on a past that none of us will ever be able to access. Couldn't be me. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't be old Charles. There's not a lot to talk about here so much, but there was a paper published now last year, Supello dominicana, a new species of cockroach, Blattida ectobiidae, with developed spermatids in Dominican amber, which if you actually read the paper, which is probably difficult for most people, like ASU doesn't even have institutional access to it. <laughs> what I had to do to get it was to sign up for a free trial on a paper reading website and then use oh, wow. that to print the PDF. And then I immediately canceled the free trial because they aren't going to get me. I should note that our listeners, if they're in the bind, should absolutely not seek out SciHub. Well, see, here's the and- thing. I would never use SciHub because I'm not a criminal. But even if I were to use SciHub, it's not even like it's not even a paper that is available there. Oh, wow. That is really obscure. Yeah, because and I mean, part of that is that it's a very boilerplate like if you have read a taxonomic description of an insect species, the, the actual paper would not be surprising to you in any aspect. But it's kind of noteworthy instead of just being like a standard we found and described this species in amber. I mean, first of all, the sort of the connection to what you've talked about is it absolutely, when I consider amber, like insects trapped in amber, it it, it is, I can't even process like how incredible that is because the, the um it says in the paper, even that the dating of this, the site that the amber was found in is a little bit controversial. So it's, a range of like 20 to 30 million years ago, but you can hold in your hand a 30 million year, not even an imprint of it, like a fossilized imprint, but the cockroach itself, which is absolutely wild. Actually, to take another tangent from that arguable tangent, we have been speaking with each other recently about Avatar because the new Avatar movie came out and I cannot get interested in the Avatar movies at all. Like I watched the trailer for the new one because i was like maybe it is more interesting than i'm giving it credit for and the thing that i feel when i watch clips from these movies or trailers for these movies is just an overwhelming sense of boredom it it doesn't feel like what they're doing in like the science fictional space of creating new species and new worlds is actually interesting to me in any way and my working hypothesis here is that as an entomologist i see so much just random absurd cool stuff all the time that like some blue cat people do not impress me yeah no i get that like a lot of the stuff in there isn't going to seem all that alien to you may if if james cameron had made like an like a, a planet of giant insectoids maybe i would have time for him but he didn't he made like blue cat people and i love cats but even these cat people don't do it for me. Well, speaking as an astrobiologist, the blue cat people are literally the least interesting thing about the, like the world they've imagined. 
like whoever was doing design came up with some pretty alien looking like stuff but then they're like oh well we can't make the 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 protagonist characters look too weird because that'll freak people out so we'll make them just look like blue cat people even though everything else on the planet has like six limbs separate openings for their lungs that aren't their mouths you know four eyes yeah i mean i guess there's some interesting stuff there it just is not like i just i've been meaning to play disco elysium for a long time there was like a more engaging and transcendent moment of science fiction in that game that is mostly about solving a murder and also communism than I have encountered in anything from the Avatar movies that I've seen at all. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, fair. I totally get that. Like I said, they are the least interesting thing about Avatar. None of it feels... It doesn't feel like there are any interesting ideas there to me. But maybe that's just me being a a skeptic. I don't know. My wife's big gripe about them is that canonically they don't have dna or rna and this makes no sense biologically like they never say oh they just use different nucleotides they it's just they apparently just don't encode biological information at all is that for all of the species on the planet or just the navi i mean i you know i don't want to close my mind to the possibility of an alternative to dna or rna i mean there are other information storage storage mechanisms that people considered but like whoever was doing the world building was like let's make them sound extra weird by saying they don't have dna and then never explaining what they have instead yeah i can't sorry to james cameron but i'm also not too sorry because i i did read an article that mentioned that like in his part of his inspiration for the first avatar movie he was thinking about the lakota and was like what if they had fought harder and won and it's like oh bro (laughs) come on so maybe not sorry to james cameron so that's that article and it it mostly notable in that it wasn't just i mean it was just the cockroach but it included quote tip of abdomen shows sperm bundles spermatidesm containing spermatozoa with dark acrosomes that are surrounded by mucopolysaccharides gelatinous material and in because you probably will not be able to find access to the article itself there is a very good write-up that will include all the information that's going to be important to people who are not specifically invested in very detailed taxonomic descriptions of cockroach species from oregon state and it is as far as anybody can tell the first fossil cockroach to be found with sperm cells interesting isn't it just um and in that description sperm bundle spermatozoa the actual sperm cells with dark acrosomes. Acrosomes are a trait that is present on most insect sperm cells. From the insect structure and function, the description being, the acrosome is a membrane-bound structure of glycoprotein with, in most insects, a granular extra-acrosomal layer and an inner rod or cone. The acrosome is probably involved with attachment of the sperm to the egg and possibly also with lysis of the egg membrane, thus permitting sperm entry. So an acrosome is just a a dark feature that is present on like the end of the sperm cell whose purpose as far as you know we seem to be aware is in helping the sperm attach to the egg and to possibly also get into the egg cell itself and there is a picture actually in the paper that shows the acrosomes themselves which is an incredible like 
I don't think anybody from 200 years ago was going to be saying, we're going to be able to look at the small parts of sperm of a cockroach from 30 million years ago. Yeah, that's pretty wild. So that's my first sperm paper. Speaking of sperm, I did kind of a mini dive on a paper that I've had saved for a long time. From 2012, uh, the efficacy of ultrasound treatment as a reversible male contraceptive in the rhesus monkey from reproductive biology and endocrinology. And basically, this paper is one in a history of papers going back at least to the 1950s or 60s of ultrasound being a potential form of contraception for mammals with testicles. So one in a, in a, in a long history of similar papers that specifically applied ultrasound treatment to a collection of rhesus monkeys in, um, I think, the California primate research. There, there's like a, 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 a large primate research facility in California, which is where they source their rhesus monkeys from. And the idea behind ultrasound treatment as a form of quote-unquote male contraception, because, of course... The the topic of quote-unquote male contraception is one that has kind of been ongoing for a long time of the idea that, like, there are two primary methods available to people who produce sperm. One is wearing a condom, which is, in my understanding, not especially popular, first of all, and secondarily is subject to individual misuse. Used correctly, condoms are extremely effective as a form of contraception as well as preventing STI transmission of STIs that are primarily transferred via fluid. But the problem is that condoms are very, very, very easily not used perfectly and imperfect use reduces their efficacy significantly. So that's not perfect. And then the other major, the other major possibility is vasectomy which is invasive in that it is surgical and it is theoretically reversible, but that's not a guarantee. And (laughs) I was reading this earlier and I was thinking to myself, and you can tell me to edit this out if you want to, but I was thinking that you had also accomplished absolutely perfect contraception. This is true. I have, I have guaranteed that I will not, directly produced any children yeah but unfortunately the the method that you used uh which is total surgical removal and reconstruction of your genitals into vulva is for some reason not very popular yeah yeah (laughs) can't imagine why so there are kind of three methods but none of them are particularly popular and not Basically, an alternative to condoms is necessary because people don't like wearing condoms. Yeah, pretty much, unfortunately. And it's like, you can't reuse condoms. Yeah, there's that. So there's like a waste problem. And sometimes people think that they can flush them down toilets and that's an issue. So there are a lot of problems with condoms. And so basically the idea with ultrasound treatment as a form of contraceptive is if you put the testicles in like a water bath 
and you just apply ultrasound waves to them, that can disrupt spermatogenesis, i.e. the creation of sperm, such that alternately in different studies, the sheer number of sperm falls or it disrupts the morphology of sperm so that they're still present but they're all goofed up. Like in the specifics, this specific study from 2012, there is a picture showing before treatment and after treatment. And the before treatment sperm all have very straight tails. They have pretty normal morphology. And then the after treatment, they are still present, like sperm were still created, but they have very like twisty corkscrew tails. So they are inactivated effectively. <laughs> and the idea, and this is like an attractive potential because other than disrupting spermatogenesis and like very temporary discomfort you know it doesn't alter testosterone production or disrupt sort of the hormonal balance of the body overall and in the studies that have been done pretty much as far as i can tell without fail over a period of weeks or months after the treatment the effects essentially wear off and then you get back to normal so the sort of the the promise of this if it were gotten to a point where it were scalable and widely available, is that it doesn't have the effects of hormonal birth control, it doesn't have the sort of user failure of condoms, and it doesn't have the irreversibility or invasiveness of vasectomy. So theoretically, like a very good option, because also when we're talking about quote-unquote male birth control, i.e., birth control for people who produce sperm rather than eggs. It, it, it's kind of a cliche talking point at this point where they have tried hormonal birth control for, as they put it, men before. But in trials, side effects were such that the people who were enrolled in them like didn't want to keep doing it long term, which is another problem that we have with hormonal birth control for people who produce eggs. But I think it's a couple of, I mean, just purely speculatively, there are a couple of reasons why hormonal birth control for people who produce eggs has been ongoing and widely mainstreamed in that A, misogyny in healthcare, where women's side effects are not taken as seriously as those from people perceived as men. And then also the burden of unplanned pregnancy is much harder on those who are producing eggs than those who are producing sperm and therefore are the ones getting pregnant. And so I imagine that if you are facing down, I am going to get pregnant or I might get somebody else pregnant. If you are the person who might have to deal with pregnancy, you're probably willing to put up with more side effects to prevent that than if you aren't. That's just my speculation. No, I can believe that. Anyway, so in this paper, what is most interesting to me is, spoiler alert, nobody seems to know how or why exactly ultrasound appears to have this effect of like it almost kind of makes you wonder how they even discovered this in the first place right and i did act, i know so i did try to go back in time and find the first instance of the application of ultrasound as a potential form of contraception and i found a, an article from 1977 which as far as i can tell is the first instance of its application on humans and i i think the genesis of the idea is that ultrasound, which is, quote, a form of acoustic vibration with frequencies so high that it cannot be perceived by the human ear, thus frequencies under 1700 CPS are called sound, while those above 1700 CPS are defined as ultrasound, right? So sound can have physical 
effects on the body. And one of these effects is increased heat. And so in sort of consistently throughout the literature, you see the comparison of ultrasound treatment versus just placing testicles in like a very warm bath. Because we know that heat can disrupt spermatogenesis by itself. And so I think sort of the 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 beginning idea of like what led people to thinking about this is the idea that well we know that heat disrupts spermatogenesis because testicles need to be kept at a certain temperature yeah or else it's why they're external it's why they're external and so what also produces heat is ultrasound and so in this paper, they specifically say, quote, recently we found that ultrasound was more effective as a suppressant of spermatogenesis in male rats at 39 degrees Celsius than were hot water, 60 degrees Celsius, infrared, and microwave. <laughs> so I really think it was a combination of like, well, we know that heat messes this stuff up and we know that different kind of waves can do weird stuff to the body. Let's check it out. Um, <laughs> and I, I really think that that was the beginning of, of it. In this paper, the methodology that they used for humans was the patients were sitting in a chair that had a cup attached at the front part of the seat. The cup was filled with water. The testicles were put in the middle of the cup. They were held in place so that they wouldn't move around. And then the ultrasound transducer was placed as the bottom. And basically, ultrasound was sent through the cup. And in the way that they were able to do this was that the men involved in this study were scheduled for orchiectomies, like medically indicated orchiectomies. So they were in a situation where the men were having, they could get a histology of testicular tissue several weeks beforehand, and then they would have the biopsy of the, they would have the testicles available to them afterwards the sourcing like i don't know but i would really guess that these people had an idea because this article also involves multiple other animals that they also tried this on and so my thinking is that they were doing the study they knew some they knew somebody in like a medical research branch there were going to be several men getting orchiectomies they were like wait wait a minute yeah. And then they were able Well, they're here. Well, they're here. And what's hilarious is that this was in 1977 and sort of spoiler alert for the, you know, the takeaway of like where are we now? There is a product that won the James Dyson Award in 2021 for something of like a proposed that would like that would be a commercial product that people could have in their home. And it basically is the exact same thing of like a little bath for your testicles that ultrasound can can be can be put through and there you go but yeah in the specific what is so what is interesting to me in the 2012 paper the efficacy of ultrasound treatment as a reversible male contraceptive in the rhesus monkey is just that primate research really freaks me out because it is more difficult i think to imagine distance between us and other primates. Do you ever get the sense of like, I hate seeing other primates because it gives me very like that one cartoon of a dog staring in the mirror and he's like angrily looking at his reflection and being like, what dog is that? <laughs> I feel like that whenever I see another primate, basically, of like, who is, what weird person is that? And so potentially just like my own bias as a primate of like seeing primates 
held in captivity and being like, that feels wrong. But what's especially wild is that in this study, the methodology is like, first they had to, they had to do multiple sperm collections, right? And so then the question is like, well, how do you get sperm from a monkey? And the answer is electroejaculation. And you might be asking, Charles, how long have people been using electroejaculation to get sperm from animals? And the answer is at least as far back as the 1930s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's been part of uh, animal husbandry. Yeah, because the most of the time electroejaculation is used in sires, right? So like in bulls. And the common methodology for those kinds of animals appears to be rectal stimulation. But for monkeys, they don't do that. They have direct penile stimulation using like electrical equipment, which is like very weird to think about. There's actually in the article that I found, in this article that I read, there is a diagram specifically of this setup of how the monkey was restrained because they were restrained but not anesthetized. And it's like, I don't, it it gives me a real feeling of, I don't know that this is okay that we're doing this yeah yeah no I especially that. because the electro ejaculation is like literally it's it, basically they're saying as previously described in a source and then i found the source where it was described methodology that they're using is from a 1991 paper in the journal of med primatol which i'm assuming is medical primatology the use of non-metal electrodes and electro ejaculation of restrained but unattestized the cocks there is a positive electrode pad placed around the base of the penis while the ground electrode pad is secured near the glands, right? So you have two pads on different sizes of the penis, like different ends of the penis, right? And then, so they form two rings, one positive and one ground, and they are moistened with conductive gel and fit, quote, snugly to maximize contact. The penis itself is held between the index and the third finger keeping the electrode separate by one of the researchers, and then the thumb and the fourth finger were used to hold the collection tube. So it's basically you have the first and the third finger holding the penis itself, and then the fourth and the thumb holding the collection tube, which I'm like making that shape with my hand right now. Awkward. And then a, quote, a grass six physiological stimulator was preset for a pulse of 20 milliseconds duration and 18 pulses a second at 30 volts. And so then if they they start at the lowest voltage and then they do sort of a stepwise increase to 50 and then to 80 and then to 100 if they don't if they aren't able to collect semen at like the previous voltage and it's if I were a rhesus monkey I don't think I would be happy about this <laughs> yeah it does sound a, a little and then that's only one part of it because other than the electroejaculation, which they have to do multiple times, like at least twice before and after, and then multiple times afterwards so that they can evaluate it for the amount and the morphology of sperm cells. And then they also have to apply the ultrasound to them with two different methods. One, the cup method, which we have already described. Basically, you put the testicles in a cup, There you go, as well as the direct method of an application of a probe directly to the scrotum slash testy surface in a continuous circular manner. And you'll never guess, but the cup method is actually the more effective method. 
which I guess makes sense intuitively, but if you asked me to describe why it does, I couldn't, I could not tell you. But essentially what they found is that the ultrasound method was found to be effective at decreasing the number of sperm with normal morphology, as well as reduced sample-to-sample variability in the total number of normally shaped sperm. And the direct method appeared to have a more pronounced effect on sperm morphology by increasing the number of sperm with tail defects. The results that they found were like very promising in that it did reduce the number of sperm with normal morphology, therefore the massive reduction in the availability of sperm that conceivably could result in fertilization. And not only did this happen, but there were limited to no detectable side effects on the testicles, such as swelling or redness or behavioral changes. Or I don't think that they specifically looked at it in this study, but in other studies, there has also been found no disruption of testosterone production, right? Which is sort of the big thing where people talk about where like you don't want to mess up people's hormone levels. But And then the other interesting thing, as already mentioned, is that it's not the actual mechanism by which ultrasound messes up sperm production is is still kind of up in the air because it's not just the result of heat because higher heat or the same amount of heat doesn't result in the same effects in disrupting spermatogenesis. So it's, it's, you know, and the, and the final interesting thing is that the specifically the way that they justify their choice of rhesus monkeys is that the testicle size of rhesus monkeys is actually very comparable to the average testicle size of humans, hmm. which is hilarious because the size of rhesus monkeys is much smaller. Yeah, I was about to say that means that their testicles are going to be proportionally huge compared to the rest of the monkeys. compared to humans. But it, I mean, it's very interesting because sometimes like it's, there is not a direct one-to-one relationship between like any given behavioral trait or like particularly you know domination behavior or whatever and testicle size it's maybe we'll do an episode on testicles someday Hmm. and like the the variations of of testicle size in mammals and what they indicate and then you know as a sort of a, a conclusion point of like where are we now this has not yet been scaled to regular human use Sort of the closest that we've gotten and the reason that this paper has been saved for like the last year is that as mentioned, there is like a a, a prototype product that won the James Dyson Award for something in 2021 called the COSO, C-O-S-O, which if you look at it, it's, I mean, their logo is hilarious or at least the, the image that they show because it's a very minimalist outline suggesting hanging scrotum (laughs) and it's from a german design graduate rebecca weiss basically looks like any kind of modern plastic hygiene product kind of you know smooth lines very contemporary design and the idea is that it would be available to people there's a little water bath you just stick your testicles right in it sends ultrasound in and then you're good to go for potentially months at a time and i (laughs) i cannot wait for this to be available to people because 
It's very silly and very funny. Yeah, you know, I was wondering, like, how is this going to be commercially ever, like, applied? But, uh, yeah, no, it, 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 they, they did a good job with the product design. Yeah, uh, and of course, the relevant articles will be linked in our show notes. Yeah, that sent me on a real journey of unease over how we treat research primates. So this one is about a much less practical and frankly, in my opinion, well thought out idea or design, which is the nuclear saltwater rocket. So let's say you're in space for some reason and you need to get somewhere else in space relatively quickly. Well, you do that by firing up a rocket engine, which ejects material of some form or another at high speed and due to Newton's laws, pushes you in the opposite direction. Now, we as a species mostly use chemical rockets, which basically you combine hydrogen and oxygen or kerosene and oxygen and ignite them. And that produces thrust because you've got all these hot gases being ejected out of your rocket engine. Well, a dude by the name of Robert Zubrin, who's also well known for being like somewhat alarmingly obsessed with the colonization of Mars, came up with a concept based off the fact that so uranium and plutonium can be produced in the form of salts like uranium nitrate and that these salts like any other salt can be dissolved in water and so his idea was like okay well we'll get some water and we'll dissolve this you know enriched uranium salt in it and then we'll store it in tanks in such a way that it's just barely not enough uranium to go critical, which is, that is to say, to sustain a nuclear reaction. And then when we want to make our spaceship go, we will move this radioactive enriched uranium containing salt water from the tanks into the rocket engine, at which point it will have pooled enough water at a high enough concentration that the uranium in the water will go critical. And the end result is basically like a continually exploding atomic weapon, because when the stuff goes critical, it, it really goes critical. It explodes, basically. And I mean, the upshot is that you can get a monstrously high thrust out of a design like this, like, you know, potentially up to, uh, depending on how you design it, up to like a fraction of the speed of light, which is very impressive for any sort of rocket engine. Now, of course, there are some pretty major drawbacks. First off, this thing shoots out radioactive fission byproducts at an appreciable speed of light. So you can't ever point it anywhere near a planet that has people or other things you care about on it. It has actually been nicknamed the death spewer for that. <laughs> the other thing is, Robert Zubrin has never really quite come up with a convincing argument to explain why this nuclear reaction you've started in the rocket engine won't propagate up the pipes and into your tanks and just cause the whole thing to detonate at once, which would be bad for you. And it also means you absolutely, absolutely cannot have any leaks in your tanks because if some of that salt water leaks out and, you know, puddles somewhere, it could potentially also go critical and explode. So, yes, but uh, still, you know, it is certainly a um, daring and uh, outside-the-box idea. And it's one that I do think of from time to time because it is just so extra. I just, everything about space 
and being in space is terrifying already. I, I just, I actually, in a, in a weird way, this reminds me of Instagram Explorer keeps showing me videos of women who are either in the free birth movement or like tangential to it. Are you familiar with this? Um, I think I've heard of it in passing, but I'm not sure. It's the idea of like the sort of extreme step against medicalization of birth effectively of like, we treat birth too much as a, a medical event rather than just like a natural process. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's like, it's like a spectrum of crunchiness of like, sometimes you just have people who are kind of, they want you to do too many drugs. And then you get people at the very far end who are like, even against like midwives. Right. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Um, And so I keep seeing Instagram keeps showing me these videos and I, my best friend as mentioned before is in an MD PhD program so they are in medical school and we talk a lot about how terrifying the human body is and the body horror of being alive, which are also just common themes on this podcast, obviously. Right. As, as listeners may have noticed. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that gets me that we have talked about, me and my best friend have talked about a lot, is how in denial a lot of people seem to be about how dangerous being alive is where a lot of the justification for free birth stuff is like it doesn't need to be in a medical environment your body knows what to do which in one sense is correct people have been giving birth for much longer than people have organized and sustained information sharing about methods of giving birth but on the other hand the maternal mortality rate has never been lower. Yeah, yeah. It used to be as high as like 20%. It's so dangerous to give birth. And I wonder, this is where the connection is coming. I, I feel like the people who go into space have got to have just a different brain than me that can put the extreme danger of space in a little box inside their brain and put a little padlock on it and not be consumed with it at all times. Yeah, no, that that sounds about right. In the same way (laughs) that people who don't even want to just have the hospital on the speed dial are maybe... Because it's all at the same time, like I do have sympathy for a lot of people who don't want to go to the hospital to give birth because, for example, it is it is still common practice for like child protective services to get called on indigenous parents like immediately. Right. So I'm not saying that there is no good reason to want to avoid institutional settings. I'm specifically talking about overwhelmingly, if not exclusively white middle-class women who have completely like compartmentalized or just forgotten because the the one very common line of questioning will be like well but if people people have been giving birth forever why is it only so medicalized now and it's like people have been dying from giving birth forever yeah 
way more than they do now. I'm just so hyper aware of the fragility of life all the time that people who can kind of propose a rocket that would almost certainly kill everybody and be like, (laughs) we'll figure it out. I just can't. I just cannot imagine it. I mean, like I said, you know, it even within the space community, it's considered um, yeah, yeah, yeah dubious to say the least. But on the other hand, it is just so out there that it does have a special place in my heart. Not that I'd ever want to be within about a thousand kilometers of one that's been activated. Yeah, I mean, but... to be fair, also though, that specific idea may be niche, but we did send people into space. We didn't have computers and we put somebody in space and he came back people do wild things sometimes actually the way we set this up is great because my final article is also very very brief but i recently fact-checked a script on what would happen if you got ejected into the vacuum of space Like, how quickly would you die and how would you die? And one of the things that really stuck out to me is that we have not done this to anybody. Like, we have not pushed any human being out into the vacuum of space without a spacesuit. So we don't have observed empirical information on what would happen to the human body in the vacuum of space. So it's it's based on extrapolations from what we do know, as well as there have been a couple of incidents where people have accidentally been ineffectively vacuum-like conditions and we've been able to see what happened to them. But one thing that really, really, really stood out to me is how much information about documented observations of the effects of a vacuum-like amount of air pressure on organic bodies we have from animal experimentation in the mid-20th century. And this is just another story of the whole electroejaculation and then ultrasound testicle bath situation for the rhesus monkeys cannot be great, but that still had to go through like rigorous ethical review. And the primate centers that we have in the United States are very rigorously controlled living conditions for the primates. And if they are held in very small spaces, it's only temporarily if they need medical care or if they're specifically in an experiment etc etc very temporary potentially large discomfort but overall pretty sweet setup but (laughs) right we also eventually have to do an episode about the wildest research people got away with before the imposition of ethical review boards oh yeah there's a lot there there was specifically a study that i read that was published in 1967 called Experimental Animal Decompressions to a Near Vacuum Environment, where they literally just took dogs. 126 animals were rapidly decompressed to absolute pressures near vacuum conditions. And they literally took dogs, rapidly decompressed them to near vacuum conditions, let them stay there and then saw what happened. Which turns out is a lot of them a lot of them died. Who would have thought? Well, it's so they had so that's the first thing is that they put them in these conditions to begin with, which is not great. And then secondarily, they did not take any efforts to resuscitate them or reoxygenate them because they wanted to observe how long it would take for them to get back to normal conditions. 
also. So that's the second thing. And then depending on the conditions, because they did, you know, they're scientists. They had varied environmental conditions. They they varied the length of time that the specific dogs were kept in these near-vacuum conditions. Quote, all dogs exposed to the near-vacuum environment for less than 120 seconds survived with essentially uneventful recoveries despite evidence of severe but transitory lug involvement. On the other hand, exposure times ranging from 120 to 180 seconds resulted in mortality rates of about 15% to more than 80%, respectively, as shown in figure two. So they literally, in the 60s, took 126 dogs, put them in near-vacuum environments for multiple minutes, and a bunch of them died. And that got published. And then people did a, a bunch of other studies doing very similar things. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just... You could pretty much just come up with any idea you wanted, and as long as it had something vaguely to do with national defense, you could just go do it. You could just go do it. So that was an episode of Science Scientist and Bachelors. My hope and my plan for 2023 is that we can have a more steady release schedule. If you are trans in science and you are interested in being a guest on the show, you can email us at asabpod at gmail.com or fill out our guest interest form, which is linked on our website or in the show notes. We're still on Twitter at asabpod. Who knows for how long, but we're there. And you can also find show notes and transcripts for every episode at our website, asabpodcast.com. And if people want to find you, Tessa, where should they look? They can check out my website, tessafisher.com, or while Twitter still exists, I am on Twitter at spacermace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E. Thank you to Nicole Petkovich, friend of the show and former guest for our music. And if you like the show, please tell people about it because word of mouth is the number one way that podcasts grow. And until next time, keep on sciencing.